Hello and welcome to this special edition of Addiction Audio, in which Professor John Marsden talks to Professor Robert West about his time as Editor-in-Chief at Addiction Journal. This episode was recorded online in November 2020, so please bear with us through some of the background noises and lapses in sound quality. Despite the challenges of recording interviews during lockdown, the content of this interview remains predictably compelling. We hope you enjoy. So I'm John Marsden, and it's my pleasure to catch up with Professor Robert West. Hi, Robert. Hi, hi, John. It's a really great uh, privilege and opportunity to to uh, catch up with you. And I wanted to spend a little bit of your time today, really, I suppose, inviting you to reflect on addiction. This great journal that you've been the editor-in-chief for, um, and maybe just ask you some questions about your tenure as editor that, that maybe f- flow through a fairly logical structure. What I'd like to kick off uh, with is to just ask you to turn your attention back in time and Tell me some of the the memories now of how you would would describe the journal just at the point you were going to take over as editor-in-chief. How would you describe the journal, its standing, its structure, its operation? I think it's a very unusual journal and has been all the time since I've been involved in it, going back all the way to the 1980s. Uh, And what's so unusual about it is that it it almost operates like a a sort of 19th century uh, scientific um, (laughs) publication in that it's quite old fashioned in its, I think in a good way, um, in the sense that it doesn't just see itself as a sort of efficient repository uh, or curation Um, device for scientific articles that people may choose to send to us but that it's much more proactive than that and it it uh, it gets stuck in to trying to make a difference and that is something that I think we owe to my predecessor Griffith Edwards Um, the other side of it, which is also old-fashioned, I think, in a way, and uh, and charming, and uh, and is different, um, is that the way that the everyone interacts in the journal is quite different from what I've seen in other journals. It really is. I mean, I, it may sound a bit odd to outsiders, but it actually really does feel a bit like a family. You know that everyone who gets involved in the journal somehow gets uh, brought into this um what griffith used to call the invisible college uh but so but it's everyone seems to have ownership of it and it's not just it's not that the editor-in-chief is sitting there trying to get people to do things reluctantly (laughs) quite the opposite everyone's kind of really gets stuck in and and what that meant was when i took over from griffith it was that it wasn't uh, a chore. It wasn't a sort of lonely um, and slightly scary uh, uh, sort of feeling uh, of being at the head of something where you're trying to sort of pull people in directions they didn't want to go. It was just slotting in to a to an operation 
that already had a life and a character of its own. I want to come on in a while to invite you to summarise for me some of the things that you have brought into being in the journal. You've been instrumental in a whole raft of changes. But if you consider what the journal was like back then, you'd agree with me that it is pretty different to how it is now. Um, what were some of the ways the journal worked back then that, that are quite different to how we work today? It was a much smaller operation. Um, it was, in those days, uh, I think the, the number of papers that would be coming through the system was far, far fewer. And it was perfectly possible to manage it with three regional editors handling the manuscripts and making decisions on all the manuscripts. Uh, so, um, uh, and I think we probably had, if I remember rightly, we, we had about 40 or 50 uh, assistant editors who would make recommendations, but everything would go through the regional editors. Griffith had already instituted a system whereby the regional editors had pretty much 100% autonomy on their decisions. Although I have to say, as one of them, um, uh, Griffith would be, you know, occasionally I'd, I'd get an email from him saying, uh, you know, are you sure about that? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so, um, but we did have autonomy and he, and he did try not to interfere too much, um, but it was much smaller and, and we had far fewer people. There was, there was quite a lot of commissioning going on at that time, um, but... Uh, uh, and Griffith had instituted some uh, series of commissioned articles that we that we ran. Um, uh, it had a news. Well, it had a. It wasn't news and notes. It was a sort of what what uh, Griffith called the iguana column. Do you remember that? The iggy yes, column. yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I, I, when I first was part of the journal, I was mystified as to the the kind of social history of this lizard and what it signified. It was another one of these sort of 19th century uh, phenomena, I think. And Griffith used to use it as a way of taking the piss out of, <laughs> out of people and organisations, which I always thought was quite funny and, and it was done rather well. Um, but, um, yeah, so, so it's changed a lot in terms of the sheer volume of material that comes through that we have to handle. And the... Uh, and therefore the size of the operation that's needed to do it. Because so now we have, apart from our re three regional editors, we have deputy regional editors, and we have something like 30 or so senior editors who are now who are decision-making editors, and about 160-odd uh, what we now call associate editors. Uh, and we have a bigger office staff to cope with all this other this stuff we do. And, and we do a lot of um, proactive work to... Uh, generate you know good content it's interesting isn't it because i think one of the things that we both have always liked perhaps even championed um for the submitting author to the journal is simplicity and that i suppose that's born or is reflected or underpinned by lots of experience that we've all had of a kind of forehead slapping frustration or the kind of Heath Robinson circuit diagram that involves submission in certain titles that will be probably nameless today. But I, it's worth knowing to people listening that 
back when you took over, submission was by email, wasn't it? There was no Scholar One. There was no online uploading software that is standard now across publishing. It was, and it was deliberately so, wasn't it? It was. Uh, I, I, if there's one thing I hate, it's filling in forms. And I, I wrote, you know, obviously in the old days, you would post your paper off to the journal in, with your three copies, double spaced and so on. And then you'd wait for about six months and see, uh, you know, to get some sort of uh, usually a rejection. Um, and, but then, yeah, by the time I uh, took over, um, we'd moved to um, a more streamlined system, but it did involve, um, you know, you'd send an email, you send your paper to the editorial office uh, in an email and you'd get a response back by email with the reviewer's comments. And, and I liked that. It was really straightforward. Um, and I was quite reluctant, I have to say, to move over to, uh, first of all, we made our own bespoke system. I don't know if you remember, but I, I commissioned a programmer to write us one because I thought that the ones that were out there were too clunky and annoying. Uh, so I, I, I developed one that was supposed to be uh, streamlined, but it wasn't sustainable. You know, you, you eventually you just have to go the way of these things and so we uh, we eventually went to Scholar One uh, and of course the advantages of these online submission systems is that you can ensure that certain bits of information that are really needed during the submission processes you know like for example conflicts of interest statements and so on are provided you don't have to keep going back to the author and say well hang on a minute you haven't sent this you haven't done this you haven't done this so in theory it gives you more control it is more annoying for the authors <laughs> because of all the hoops they've got to go through but i suppose one way of looking at it is that you know you spent three years doing a study you know and about six months trying to write the thing up and then you know what's another hour or so filling in the online submission form it feels like a grind, but, um, you know, it's not much in the scheme of things. Tell me some of the sort of hopes, desires, and maybe some of the fears that you had back then when you were about to take the helm and, and you know, after Griff retired. What were the things that you were hoping to do and maybe some of the things that were also keeping you awake at night? So I'll be honest and say, I don't think I had any hopes, but I did have some fears. <laughs> I, 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 I thought, well, you know, if I, if I can keep this show on the road, um, that would be good. And my fear was that I would manage to close the flipping thing down <laughs> accidentally, <laughs> uh, you know, people would stop submitting and so on. Um, uh, but again going back to what i was saying earlier about it being a real team effort um the fears were swiftly dispelled because everyone involved in the sort of senior editorial team and the office staff uh were were all partners in the process so it didn't feel like it was all sitting on my shoulders um and so that then freed me up, I think, to be innovative and to start thinking about, OK, what can we do with this journal? And it's an enormous privilege. I mean, as you're going to find out, John, I mean, you know, wow, who who in this world gets an opportunity to uh, have to, I wouldn't say play with, but, you know, to innovate uh, and to try out ideas that then have quite a big impact uh, across the scientific discipline. Um, so 
what it what would happen i think would be that um something i'd find i'd find something kind of frustrating or annoying about the field and the way things are done and i would try and think of how the journal could fix it uh, or help to fix it and that led to sort of innovation after innovation i think throughout the journal we've talked a little bit about how i suppose not kicking and screaming but to a to a degree we we fell in line with contemporary publishing and you, through your leadership the the scholar one system was and i might say it was actually adapted for us we didn't really did we we didn't just take a kind of boilerplate piece of piece of software we 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 spent a lot of time making sure it worked for us and in fact i think it was it was designed wasn't it to be as light as possible almost keeping that old spirit of of simply an email alight in some ways but I, and we talked about how the, the there's no doubt about it that the personnel side of our family has completely tripled really could you tell me a little bit about if you just look back some of the things that just come to mind that you feel especially pleased about that on your watch the journal now does or is perhaps even still working towards, but some of the kind of standout things that you think people should really remember that, you know, humbly, you were at the helm in that particular area of development. I think that one of the things was bringing in the stats editors. And there was a bit of serendipity in that, I have to say, because... um, my friend and colleague John Stapleton, our wonderful John Stapleton, um, uh, uh, had been working with me in my team at UCL um, as our stats and clinical trials guy. Um, and uh, the way that the sort of funding system was working, um, uh, it, it, and, and, and John was sort of, I think, getting sort of very close to sort of, you know, notional retirement age. Um, I was thinking, well, you know, we uh, we need a statistical editor. It's not, a, you know, we can't carry on the way we are um, uh, with the journal. Um, and, you know, John's contribution to the UCL team was sort of, um, I mean, it, it was always incredibly valuable, uh, actually, but um, probably didn't need so much on that side of things because we were getting statistical expertise from other sources as well. So it, it was a bit of serendipity there that John became potentially available to the journal. And I thought, right, here's, you know, I, I grabbed it with both hands. And fortunately, John uh, agreed. Um, and so now we had someone who could scrutinise manuscripts. And, and the thing about John as a statistician is he's not your average statistician, as you know. Um, you know, he, he, he he's very much viewing statistics from the eye of the researcher, the clinical trialist or the researcher, rather than the statistician. So he knows what the realities are for the researchers and research and what the practicalities are. And he knows what the readership wants to uh, to know about and what needs to be communicated. So, so it's a very rare thing to have someone like that. And, um, and I think it, you know, I think most of us feel that it made a huge difference because it, it allowed it, it, what it meant is that although it, it created you know another layer in the process of reviewing um, manuscripts, it hugely improved 
the quality of the manuscripts that we ended up with. I could not agree more. Um, his contribution, I think, is is has been absolutely singular, hasn't it? And I, I, I mean, I think we, we will, we will both acknowledge a small number, but a few occasions in which John has kind of softly come to our ear and said, "You've published something that looks like it's got an error in it," or this doesn't look like it was particularly well done. And, and that's the sort of thing that makes your heart, you know, miss a beat, really. And I think he really has put a rate step improvement for our readers so that, you know, it's never easy to analyse a, a, a study, let, you know, particularly a clinical trial, is it? You can get misdirected by your numbers, you can miss inference, etc. And, and And that kind of pragmatic very generous sort of understanding of the difficulties we all work under, I think, as applied clinical academics has been a real asset for working with John. But I, I mean, would you agree that as, as the journal's impact and the measure of that has increased, we ought to really doff the cap to our statistical editors as, and note that they have, I would argue, been part of that process so that we publish things that are that are better better presented and then perhaps by definition more likely to have the impact that surely the authors would always have wanted yeah yeah absolutely i would and of course of course what we discovered after a bit was that there wasn't enough of john to go round <laughs> and uh, so we then expanded our pool of uh, uh, stats editors and i was I was actually a little bit anxious when we put the call out for more stats editors as to whether anyone would be interested in doing it. You know, it's quite a job. Um, and I was really pleased that both the number and the quality of the people who responded to our call. And then, of course, we've had to do it again <laughs> so, you know, to get more. And, um, and again, I, I thought, wow that's really cool, you know, that we can get people of that calibre to come and work with us in the journal. So, so that's, been a, that's been a huge thing. Two other things I think that we did, have done, which uh, I, I think have um, been a service to the journal in the field. Um, one of them, and they're related, one of them is to produce, you know, what I've called citable statements, um, to really try and get authors to focus in the conclusion of their abstract on a standalone proposition which you could just take out of context and that means something and, and it's, it's the opposite of the thing that always used to drive me mad in psychology articles where the, the conclusion would be something along the lines of the results were discussed yes <laughs> and more studies what? are needed more studies are needed and the results were discussed um so so really put some, uh, you know, uh, serious specific content in those conclusions in this citable statement. So the concept of the citable, citable statement for our, our dear listeners is a statement which you could lift directly from the conclusion of the abstract and put in the introduction of your article without having to change a word um, so that uh, you don't get this issue of... Um, miscommunication by people constantly paraphrasing things all the time. 
Um, and then the related thing to that, which came a bit later, was getting Susie Gage in as our social uh, media editor uh, and putting out key findings and then t uh, putting these on social media and particularly Twitter. Um, now, I, when Twitter started, I wasn't a big fan of Twitter. I'm still not a big fan of it, but I have to say it can serve very useful purposes a purpose for sort of you know people like us academics in terms of getting uh, findings out there so so the whole dissemination process mm. i think has been improved I, I i agree very much and i think I, I was always a bit perplexed why authors seem to struggle with what to write after the word conclusion uh in an abstract and i i i sometimes used to imagine almost a kind of um, a video ticker tape around Times Square, for example, that, that flashes along and it's, it says something like uh, a, a randomised controlled trial of um, a, a tobacco cessation aid has found that, um, has found that it's associated with twice the likelihood of quitting compared to the best available comparator, you know, that that's a citable sentence with just a few extras needed, and it it really was a struggle. But I I think that that quiet little innovation, as you say, has kind of directly enabled Susie and others to pick up and run with a particular uh, article for our readers. And I think quietly, you've done a a brilliant service to science, really, because that's helped. Well, it's helped me as an editor encourage authors to write the things. <laughs> um, but I think it also, it, 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 it makes sure that what has been done, there's an active verb in it, that there's a sense of what is now new understanding. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and this has been an itch that you've had for a while, because uh, I've, <laughs> I've had the pleasure of ch chatting and sometimes arguing with you about it but you've got and had a real bee in your bonnet about null oh. about no difference about sentences that say uh, there was no difference between a and b let's say or no association between x and y could you say without going down a technical rabbit hole could you say a little bit about what the problem in science has been and at least some of the ways under your time in the journal you've gone about fixing it yeah well yes don't get me started <laughs> <laughs> well I'm too late you've already got me started uh so you know when you You'll remember this, John, I'm sure. You were at UCL, weren't you? you I, were, I was, yeah. I was. Yeah, well, we were both at UCL, which I think as in, in the psychology department had pretty good stats teaching. And I'm pretty sure probably somewhere near the first week, if not the first month of the first year, we were told that you cannot assert the null on the basis of a non-statistically significant difference or effect. You can't do it. It makes no sense. It is wrong, right? So how can it possibly be that even now, John, even now, as we're going through the abstracts and the flipping paper has been through endless series of 
<laughs> of reviews and editorials and so on, that we're getting conclusions. There was no difference between the active condition and the control condition, or there was no difference between this and that, or there was no relationship. When all they've done is to show that there wasn't a statistically significant difference. So anyway, it's, it's still it's, it's, a big I, issue. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I suppose I come at this from the point of being someone who, that does trials and other surveys and things, where the reason I'm doing the study is to fill a gap, but that I have some guesstimate as to the, the effect I'm looking for. Because that's how I've worked out how many participants to enrol. I've, I've, I've powered the study. Um, sometimes with, with a lot of you know, solid evidence, sometimes you know, a bit more Bayesian, a bit vaguer perhaps. But it seems to me that the, the difference you're trying to find is usually one that's clinically important. Um, and I, I, I've never quite understood why people sometimes don't go back to reflecting on the difference they thought they were going to see. And I, I couldn't agree more. I think it, it fills me with dread when I see a manuscript that, that seems to want to just talk about p-values. And I think yeah, the, the thing yeah. you have done very nicely, and, and as John, is, has you know, encouraged our authors and the readers of our communications to be much more interested in estimation uncertainty and 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 for those descriptions to be you know evaluated in terms of whether they're important or not yeah so so i think there's um there's two kinds of things you want to say about your results and i i don't 100 percent agree with um those medical statisticians who think that it's only about estimation i think estimation is really important but sometimes you have to make decisions. You have to say, you know, I think I've got something here or I don't think I've got something here and I will, I will call a halt to whatever it is or we won't bother with it anymore. Uh, so so um, when it comes to estimation, then you estimate your parameter, you estimate your confidence intervals and you present that and, and people can take it for what it is. And that's fine. When it comes to saying, I think I've got something here, folks, um, then you've got to be clear about what you think it is that you've got. And if you think you don't, if, it, if you do the study and you think you don't have something, you've got to be clear about that. So for that, then classical statistics is no use at all. The, uh, the p-value is, is just a, a, um, a, a sort of uh, it, it misdirection. For that, you need Bayes. You need Bayesian analysis. Um, and what Bayesian analysis does, and I think this is something that we were very fortunate in the journal in being able to get people to write for us about it. Um, and I think it's a slow process, but I do see things changing quite, quite a lot now. Um, what it does is it, it, it answers the question you wanted answered on the decision-making front. It says, what is the relative probability that I got an effect of, of the size I was looking for uh, or any other size that you might want to postulate versus no effect. Um, and if you've, got, if you've done a study and uh, your Bayes factor for your, uh, uh, for your H1, your, your experimental hypothesis versus the null is kind of like 0.01, then you can say, okay, I don't think we got an effect here. 
we didn't get, you know, because the probability that we got an effect over not getting an effect is only one in a hundred. And, you know, that's, that's good enough for me. I think it's time to call it, call, call it quits on this. So um, I think the, we, we, we will increasingly see the use of Bayes for that kind of thing. And um, estimation, obviously, is tremendously important. The other, the other side uh, of, uh, of the Bayes uh, approach, which I think, again, um, is going to be much more important as time goes on, is, is about evidence accumulation. And one of the things that's very frustrating reading the literature is there might be seven or eight studies on a particular topic. Let's say, in fact, I've seen this with, let's say, um, uh, you know, varenicline versus NRT or varenicline versus placebo. Uh, varenicline being a smoking cessation drug and NRT being nicotine replacement therapy, right? And, and there's been a number of studies on this, right? And then someone else comes along with a study and let's say they don't find a statistically significant difference, right? And so their conclusion is there is no difference between varenicline and NRT. And you think, hang on a minute, yours, <laughs> yours isn't the only study that's been done, mate. Not only that, but you didn't find no effect. You just found that there wasn't a significant difference. You know, so we've got to be more cumulative in the way we, we um, you know, address these things. So you see, I did, I did say you've got me started on this. No, I, 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 I sat back and enjoyed the last 10 minutes immensely. <laughs> but I, 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 well, I, I want to move on in a moment and ask you to reflect on where, I suppose in a way, your hopes and fears for the journal going forwards. But before I do, I, I just wanted to... Look, you've done a couple of things in the smoking arena, tobacco cessation and e-cigarettes and things. Um, and I think you would agree with me that the journal's sort of nicotine and tobacco content has really grown over the last decade. I wonder if you could just sort of summarise the sorts of ways that the journal has has really had some standout successes in reporting on the science of tobacco control and nicotine cessation and all that stuff. What do you think have been some of the the real nice successes that, that really relate to your specific, I mean, you're very broad, but your, your specific area of, of expertise. It's been, it is be it, right. It has been quite, um, is the word gratifying, pleasing anyway, um, to see, uh, nicotine and tobacco researchers, um, feeling that nic that addiction is a, uh, you know, a good home for their research uh, because that, that wasn't always true. Um, be, and I think it's just that you look at journals and you look at the content of the journal, you say, well, that's mostly alcohol and drugs. Um, it's not got much smoking in it. We, you know, that's obviously not a journal that, you know, smoking researchers read. So, that, so to have more uh, uh, tobacco and, and nicotine research in the journal, I think has been good because a lot of it is very good research. Um, I think that in terms of the studies uh, that we've reported on uh, and all the research that we've reported on that I think I'm pleased about, uh, one of them is actually the opportunity we've, we've had to publish uh, from the Cochrane Group. Uh, the Cochrane Group, to me, 
<laughs> I've said this to them, so you know if they're listening to this, you know they'll they'll this this won't make their um, ears go red <laughs> any more than they already have. But for me, in the tobacco field, the Cochrane Group would be the last people out of the balloon in the balloon debate. Everyone else, you know, it, I would sacrifice everyone else to keep Cochrane because it is such a terrific resource. I don't know what we would do without it, to be honest. It's a, it's a massive resource. And we've been lucky enough to publish some of their findings. And one of, and one of the things I did um, ask them to do, uh, and, and, they, and they do this every now and then to update it, is to publish a single paper which has kind of got everything in because that's often what you want to cite that that's the place you want to go to for your top line findings on kind of like everything you wanted to know about interventions to help people stop smoking so that that was that was a big plus uh, i'm really pleased that they they did that um i think the other thing i think and this is controversial now john okay i'm <laughs> because, strapped in <laughs> uh, because not everyone agrees with me on this I, um, in the field of harm reduction, as you know, in drugs and alcohol, well, drugs particularly, you know, it's very controversial for a while. It's less controversial now. Um, but harm reduction in the field of tobacco has been very controversial and continues to be. We're kind of where drugs were probably about 20 years ago, I think. Um, and I think there are arguments on both sides. I, I don't think myself that the harm reduction case uh, in general terms, is has been fully made. I I, I think that uh, where when you've got good uh, policies and treatments which can get people to not use any form of tobacco or nicotine, um, then that's quite good. And <laughs> you know you, you you have to argue yourself in if you want to say. Um, well, I, I'm I'm happy with, or I'm satisfied with people using a less harmful tobacco product or a nicotine product. Um, but um, but what we've tried to do in addiction is to be scientific about it and to be dispassionate about it. And so we published some studies that seem to um, go against some of the propositions being made by people who take a harm harm reduction perspective and we, we published other studies which would support that view uh, and each study has its own weaknesses and its own strengths but because the field is because that area in tobacco research is so toxic for researchers because of uh, in my view um, a sort of fanaticism uh, that exists uh, in certain quarters um, I think that we've got a bit of a reputation, if anything, of being pro-harm reduction. Now, I don't think we are. I think we just uh, want to try and present the results. And if someone comes along with a study which they claim shows that, you know, I don't know, they, they, they might show that um, e-cigarettes, you know, give you cancer and, you know, are worse than smoking, and the study is a terrible study, we won't accept it. And ditto, uh, and we've done the same on the other side, someone who says, well, I got this survey and people said they, you know, that millions of people gave up with uh, smoking with e-cigarettes. They found it really easy. And I'm saying, well, hang on a minute. That's, not, you know, that's, that's rather weak evidence. So we won't accept that either. So in trying to um, find this uh, 
scientific approach to it, I think we've made a few enemies. But, but by and large, I think we've done the right thing. So I feel quite pleased with it. Can you um, turn your attention forward? And given what you know about the journal, given what you know about its amazing family, its team, what are your hopes and fears for addiction over, say, the next five to ten years? I think it's a very exciting time for academic publishing. I think it's things are going to move forward really quickly. I think that the publishing model may not be as lucrative for publishers and societies as it has been in the past. And it has been, you know, academic publishing can be an extremely lucrative business. Um, and I'm not, you know, you know very well that I've often pushed back against that because I feel that you, you think, well, who's paying for this? Uh, uh, but, um, but I think it's really exciting. And I think um, the reason for that is that uh, new technology and IT and particularly AI and machine learning are going to give us tools which are going to make the job of doing research and disseminating it and using it miles better. It'll be like going from um, quill and ink to you know the printing press. Um, and, and it's like going from the printing press to the computer. And the reason I say that is that, uh, as you know, we've put a toe in the water with the development of the you know, phase one of this, which is a paper authoring tool for two-arm randomized controlled trials. And once you use a tool like that, for me, it's a bit like once you use a, something like EndNote or Reference Manager or Zotero for your references, you wouldn't go back to you know typing them out and then having to reformat them and so on. You just wouldn't do it. In fact, I, I was thinking the other day that if someone made, if someone said to me that I had to do my references by hand again, I just wouldn't write any more papers. I'd say, that's it. I'm sorry, <laughs> that's it for me. I'm done. Um, I think we'll we'll it'll be like that. You know, essentially, people when they're designing their studies as well as when they're writing them up will be using these tools and the tools will, they won't make it harder to do, they'll make it so much easier because they'll be there with intelligent prompts. So for example, you're designing your study on, um, you know, let's take tobacco, you're designing a study on the effectiveness of a new pharmacotherapy for smoking cessation. It will already know all the bits of information that you need to put in to a, a study on pharmacotherapy for smoking cessation, it will be able to prompt you with possible outcome measures and give you uh, an idea about what ones have been used in the past and have been successful in the sense that, you know, top ranked journals have accepted uh, those outcome measures. And so you can, you can almost like design your study by um, picking off a menu the, and, and people think, oh, well, that will ruin all the creativity. But it won't any more than, you know, the diatonic scale ruined creativity for music. It it helps you with the creativity because it frees you up to think about things that that you that really matter and they're going to make a difference. And then when you, you know, what should happen is you 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 design your study, you write up your study using these tools. It then you should be pretty confident that a journal's not going to turn the study down because 
it's not going to be quixotic. You're not going to be down to reviewers saying, oh, I don't know about that. You know, you've used the wrong outcome measure or that design wasn't the right design because you'll have, you'll have been supported in choosing the right design um, when it came to the study. So, so I think AI and ML and our online tools of the sort that I hope that we can continue to develop um, will um, uh, massively increase the, the, uh, the productivity of our field. I'm um, I, I'm keen just finally to be a bit selfish and ask you to give me a few words of advice when I step into your shoes and take on the job of uh, leading the journal. Now, apart from telling me to not screw it up, <laughs> um, what <laughs> advice would you give me as the um, the new editor? I would say uh, ease yourself into it because you, you, I mean, you know, you've been deputy editor in chief already for for some time, and you're regional editor. And um, you, you know, one of the reasons why my job has been so much easier than it would otherwise be is because of you <laughs> and your uh, incredible efficiency when it comes to you know dealing with stuff. And that's a massive asset. And I think um, so. I think it'll be relatively straightforward from the point of view of keeping the show on the road. Um, I think I think it's uh, and, I, and you already do this. I know um, that, um, you know, we rely on our mates in the journal, on, on the family, on the team and uh, the fact that everyone is engaged. And I think that is the most precious asset. And of course, we've got our wonderful uh, office staff who who are probably the only really um, irreplaceable people in the whole enterprise. Uh, so I think, you know, I, I don't need to give you advice because I think you already know and um, are doing it. Uh, it. It's about being collegiate and steering the ship rather than um, trying to uh, force it down a route, one route or another. And the one thing I think that I... Um, I think I might have done better than Griffith. I don't know whether I've done it better than Griffith or not. But, you know, when Griffith, one of Griffith's talents was if he wanted you to do something, you, you could try holding out against it, but it wasn't going to work, was it? You know, eventually you'd do it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Griffith uh, was not one necessarily for listening to opposing points of view. <laughs> Uh, in the nicest possible way, um, and I think I do a bit more, and I, and I and I know you will, John, because I think you know I I have strong views about things, and I've had strong views about things that I thought we should do, or that um, you know papers that should be accepted, and you and Keith, usually you Keith and Shane, and probably some other people have said no, that's a stupid idea, and we don't want to accept that paper, and I've gone. Well, whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Robert, fantastic to talk to you and thank you so much for your time. Thanks, John, and uh, good luck. And uh, I will be there looking over your shoulder. <laughs> no, I won't. I will be um, offering all possible assistance uh, over the next few years. And uh, it's, 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 uh, I'm so pleased, so pleased that you're taking over, John. <laughs>